Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. Today, I'm talking to and learning from Jerry Valentine. Jerry's written a great book called The Thriving Mindset. The book is, I guess, part autobiography and part tool set design and delivery. Jerry grew up as a gay man in Brooklyn in the 1970s. And one of the things that we talk about is the chances of him being where he is today, which is business coach, having had a successful career as a corporate executive, having done a degree and an MBA. And he reckons the chances of of that were about 6%. He thinks of himself as incredibly lucky. He's a very humble man who has got a lot to offer the world. He, He sees the thriving mindset, which is how to cope with uncertainty, how to cope with change. His book came out in March 2021. So not written from a COVID perspective, but certainly very useful to anyone whose life or business is going through change. And it talks about why we get fearful, how to get from running away from the problem and how to take fear, look it in the eye, work out what could be the other side of this disruption and have the mindset to push through. Really, really interesting conversation and also possibly some of the most diverse book suggestions, reading suggestions of of recent guests. I won't spoil it. I'll leave those to the end. But certainly I've gone out and bought them already. Fantastic conversation with Jerry. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm sure you will too. I'm Jerry Valentine. I am an executive coach, author and public speaker. I live in New York City, or at this moment, right outside of New York City, as we hopefully recover from COVID. I am actually a native New Yorker. I grew up in Brooklyn of the 1970s, Brooklyn, New York. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be with you here today. Jerry, great to have you here. What type of people do you coach? I work with primarily corporate executives or entrepreneurs, but I like to use the term, I I work with high-performing individuals because I'm interested in working with people who are either looking to step up to some type of new opportunity or to overcome some type of disruption in either their business or their lives. The tagline I use on my business card is turning adversity into advantage because I believe very, very strongly that disruption and adversity are, are a natural part of life. And the, the key is understanding how to handle disruption and adversity well. And when we do that, we can 
find the advantage or the opportunity that is often on the other side of the disruption or adversity. Is that a mindset thing that people are sort of caught in the disruption and it are they trying to go backwards rather than go forwards? And they need the mindset shift to be able to see that Winston Churchill, if you're in hell, keep going, you know? <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that one. I like that question a lot, Dominic. I think it is both a mindset and, you know, my book is called The Thriving Mindset. So I, I do believe it's a mindset, but I also believe that it is a specific skill or a set of skills. And, and I think the ability to, to thrive through what I call thrive through disruption. And that's a bit of a play on words because I mean to persevere through disruption, but I also mean to, to use disruption as a tool to thrive is a set of skills that we can teach people that we can impart upon people. And I, much of my work is teaching people, imparting upon people that skill set or those those set of skills such that they can thrive through disruptive times. And then when I'm working with corporate leaders, it's kind of a train the trainer to help them understand themselves, how they can thrive through disruptive times, and then how they create organizations of people who have skills to thrive through disruptive times. And with when you're working with corporate leaders, is that mostly people for whom disruption has been thrust upon them? You know, my experience of working in corporates is most of my jobs weren't deeply disruptive unless, you know, the unit was getting closed down or, you know, there was a merger or there was an acquisition. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's sort of... Yeah, I, I, I do know what you mean. And, you know, again, I think that's a really great question I love. I, I think the truth is, for most people, it's when disruption has been thrust upon them. And I think that that's an unfortunate thing. Because what, what we ought to be doing is recognizing, you know, as I say, that disruption is a natural part of life and that we ought to be, you know, sometimes seeking out that disruption or you know, just having the mindset that, that it's going to come. In asking that question, you, you make me think about how, how I got to these, point, these points of view. So I grew up, as I said, in New York City, and it was New York City of the 1970s. And I think both you and I are have enough years on us to remember what that was like. You, you know, New York was a very different place, and particularly the part of the New York that I grew up in. It, it was Brooklyn. It was a time when the city was close to bankruptcy, when there were all kinds of social problems that come from disinvestment and, and poverty and people actually trying to do the very best they can with not nearly the resources they ought to have. And I was very lucky to leave that environment to go on to earn you know, an Ivy League degree followed by an MBA and then launched off into a, a corporate career, which was something that I never dreamed that I would have the opportunity to have. I was looking at some stats at the weekend, reading an article in the paper in the UK, and it was saying, in the UK, one measure of deprivation is gets free school meals. It was looking at the various potential outcomes. It was like, what proportion of children by ethnic group get who get free school meals go on to university? Yeah. And in the UK at the moment, the group that does least well is white children on free school meals, actually black, Asian, Bangladeshi, Indian, and Afro-Caribbean descent do all do better than, than white children. But you know, what was the proportion of kids in your school or in your neighborhood that went on to get an ivory school education? Like, what is it like 0.1.1%? That's a, an important and a nuanced question, Dominic. So 
you know, I, I, that story that I'm talking about, like I sometimes call it my 6% story. I don't know the stats in the UK, but in the US, if you look at the stats, the, the probability of an African-American man born into the circumstances I was uh, ending up in the life that I now have is approximately 6%. So you, you layer onto that the, you know, the fact that I'm also a gay man and the, the stats go down, although I, I'm not a, aware of how I would find that out. So in my case, it's the, the nuance of the story is that although I grew up in the neighborhood that I did, I had got an incredible opportunity to go to an elite private school, of course, on scholarship. Um, and that changed the trajectory of my life from sixth through some sixth grade through 12th grade. And in my school, where there were very few black kids, my graduating class was um, 47. Everybody went to college because there was no there was no path other than go to college. My peers at school were, you know, very different demographic than I was coming from a very different type of home. You know, out of 47, seven went to Ivy League schools. Almost everybody went to an elite college of, of some type. I, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So, it, you know, there was, a, there was a huge pivot there. From my perspective, and it's, it's one of the things I talk about in my book, actually, part of what allows people to thrive through disruptive times is what I call intellectual capital. And I think that one of the things that we do poorly as a you know, society here in the US, I'm, I'm not gonna speak for the UK because I know your educational system is different and I don't know the stats there, but we do a very poor job of providing people en masse with educational capital. So the, the reason that the stats in my neighborhood were so different than the stats in the school I was fortunate enough to attend is because the schools are tremendously underfunded. And so kids aren't getting that basic foundation of education, which, which then cuts off opportunity later. But it's educational capital, and particularly in the world we live in today, is more than that foundational education. I actually divide it into four levels. So there's that foundational education. Then on top of that is critical thinking. And critical thinking is the ability to use your foundational knowledge in unanticipated, novel, new circumstances. And then you layer on top of critical thinking, social intelligence. So one, one of the things that I think is really important to think about right now, and you and I at this moment are collaborating across two different countries. I'm in the US, you're in the UK, and we're able to do it seamlessly. That's because technology has made the world a much smaller place. And when the world is a much smaller place, that means you need to interact effectively with a much broader array of people. And that requires social intelligence, which is actually a complex skill. And then layered on top of social intelligence is this notion that I call self-education. And the, the point uh, there, and I think it... It, it comes back to that initial thing that you spoke about, about who goes on to a university education. I think university education or college level education, as we call it here, is just table stakes right now because the world around us is changing so rapidly that the foundational knowledge you have gained in a college education, even elite college education, is going to become outdated so quickly 
that you will constantly need to upgrade your skills. Oh, totally. If, if, if it was ever useful. I mean, you know, I, I quite often meet people and they've got a business education and they think that might be useful. I think doctors do something that goes on to potentially be usable. But, you know, if you do history, the facts aren't going to change, but it's probably not very useful. Well, actually, I think it, I think it is. So I'll, I'll tell you something. My um, undergraduate degree is in electrical and computer engineering. And I graduated from college in 1985. So a couple things here. A, I always say I have a degree in electrical and computer engineering. I do not call myself an electrical and computer engineer because the facts in that domain have changed <laughs> dramatically. <laughs> but what, one of the reasons I, I got that degree was because it was a very lucrative degree. And I was also, it also played to my strengths at the time. But then I went on to discover I don't actually want to be an engineer. I never even interviewed for an engineering job. I went directly into like a, a business track. So you could argue, yeah, I didn't, I didn't use it. Yeah. However, what I really think you, you learn when education is done right, and I was fortunate enough to, to get this type of education, it's not a, an education is not about rote learning. There's a certain amount of foundational knowledge that's necessary. You need to know how to read, you know how to write, and you do need certain knowledge of, of history or you can't function well in the world. But what a, a, a high quality education really provides are critical thinking skills and an ability to continuously self-educate through life. So we had, I went to Cornell University and we kind of had a joke in engineering school that if you, if you saw a particular problem on a homework assignment, you would never see it on the exam. So it was no use memorizing the problems you'd seen on the homework assignments. What you would be tested on would be that same concept in a context that you had not seen it in before. And the point of that type of education is to develop those critical thinking skills. There was also a huge incentive to, A, to understand the value of knowledge in and of itself. It was not about the grades, it was about the value of the knowledge. And to go on to continue to, 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 to pursue your education. So the stat I want to bring up, which I think is really interesting, which I think goes exactly to your point, as was the case, you know, back in 1985, when I graduated, if you graduate from college or university with what's called, you know, a STEM degree, science, technology, engineering, math, you're going to go on to have opportunities for higher income positions. But the engineering graduate unless they go on to, unless they change tracks, is going to actually fall below the history major's salary earnings by age 40, huh. if you normalize for, for quality of education. And here's the thinking on why, and I completely agree with this because I see this in, in my coaching practice every day. You know, STEM feels, as much as I respect it and I love my, my STEM degree, the knowledge base is static. And so you're being hired away by a company for a certain number of skills that you can do. Because technology evolves rapidly, your skills are going to decline. There will be newer graduates who are more skilled on the cutting edge technology that, than you are, yeah. who the company can pay less. 
So that's why there's this weird thing that goes on. However, people who have liberal arts degrees tend to be more adept at critical thinking, and that's more what that training looks like. And as you go up into leadership, which is what I work with, people who are ascending into leadership, those critical thinking skills become more important. They don't get old over time. They don't get old over time. And in fact, you, yeah. you, you continuously use them. And that's why I call it intellectual capital, because it, it's a complex notion. And I think that being adept in the, those four layers, like great foundational knowledge, great critical thinking skills, great social education, and then the ability to continually self-educate, that's what you need in a disruptive world. Yeah. Is that 6%? Is it 6% still now? If you were... The stat is recent. Depressingly the same. It is depressingly the same. Yeah. It is depressingly the same. Again, I'm going to speak for the United States. I can I know there are parallel issues in the UK, but they're different. We've done a, a very poor job of addressing inequality. And inequality has multiple dimensions. Race is an enormous factor in inequality, as is socioeconomic status, which is aligned with race, but separate from race. Yeah. There are geographic issues with inequality that are now beginning to surface in the United States. Um, so we've done a terrible job of addressing those issues. You could make an art, well, you can't, it's not that you can make an argument. There's data that's showing that the, our rates of inequality in the United States are getting worse, not better. Yeah. It's tough, isn't it? It's that, well, let's see what um, Joe manages to do, Mr. Biden. It's complex. I mean, I, you know, I, I wish I could say that like one person will do it, um, I think it, it think it needs to be a, a societal push to think about these and to and to you know really acknowledge the problem, which which we kind of don't do. Yeah. So there, the, you know, there's something you know this relates to to something that I which it's one of those skills that I talk about um, in the book. That's it's part of a thriving mindset. It, it's this cycle that I call the adversity fear paralysis cycle, and and this is how it works. So if you accept the premise that disruption and adversity are unavoidable. They are a normal part of life. The normal response to disruption or adversity is fear. And it is the fear that you will not be able to meet the demands of whatever the disruption or adversity is. Yeah. And I tell people that the problem is not the fear. The problem is about how people respond to the fear. So people often respond to that fear by going into what I call paralysis, which is an unproductive response to the disruption or adversity. And that causes you to loop around because when you go into paralysis, then the original disruption or adversity gets worse. Either a new one arises or, or the one that was initially there get, gets augmented. Because <laughs> if you ignore it, it doesn't go away. It does not, it does not go away. So here's my favorite example. And it, it's an innocuous example because it's, it's business, but everybody gets it. So the company Eastman Kodak, which we are both senior enough to remember, yeah. went bankrupt in 2012 uh, after over a century in business. And if I were to ask you why, you would not likely say, as most people do, because of digital photography. But with most people, 
don't know is that Kodak actually invented the first digital camera back in 1975. And then people say, well, you know, how could this possibly have happened? And it's because that cycle happened, the adversity, fear, paralysis cycle. And there was a great story in the New York Times a few years ago about the engineer who actually invented the first digital camera. He's a guy by the name of Steve Sasson. And he talks about what those days were like at Kodak when he had, you know, it was a big clunky thing at that point, but he was running around the company trying to talk about the significance of this invention to top brass. And he could not get anybody to listen to him. And the, the reason is somewhat obvious because back in the day, you took pictures in Kodak cameras on Kodak film, you took your film to the drugstore and had the film developed in Kodak chemicals. And then in a week or so, you went back and got your pictures on Kodak paper. So this notion of digital photography was a threat to every step in the Kodak value chain. And he met with tremendous resistance, no vision about the company, about what, what it could become. And he talks about how in desperation, he tried to explain to, to the top brass that this invention was not just about pictures, as we thought of them, that it might mean that someday you could actually send pictures over the phone line. Now, think about like what that, that, that idea in the context of what. And we could argue that, you know, who better to imagine what photography could become other than, than Kodak, but that fear of change which you and I talked about a little bit before, leaders who have had disruption thrust upon them, in this case, a disruptive technology, caused that paralysis, which ultimately prevented the company from leveraging its own invention for so long that by the time they came in, the competition had an insurmountable lead. You know what? It's, I mean, Clayton Christensen wrote you know, Innovator's Dilemma about the whole thing. But I, in businesses I've been in, we've seen the same thing. You know, we were running IT businesses full of servers in data centers and along comes Amazon Web Services. And it's like, at the beginning, it's small and it's not what, what our customers would buy. It'll go away. It will go away. <laughs> or the growth will stay linear. Because somehow there's something there's something biological in our brains that stops us seeing an exponential trend. That stops some of us from seeing. Yeah. You know, there's a line I use a lot. Why does adversity cause some people to break and other people to break records? And and I think that's really, really, really important because it's about that that curiosity, and which is one of the one of the tools I think for thriving in a disruptive world is really cultivating your sense of curiosity. And what happens is, so what I'll tell people is that, you know, when you feel that fear that naturally comes with disruption, like the, the thing is to say, there is nothing wrong with it. It is, it is a natural appropriate response because let's face it, anyone who's not afraid today is not paying attention. But you can also learn to use that fear as kind of a springboard to leapfrog out of whatever that disruption you're in and into the opportunity that I think is so often on the other side of it. And one of the skills is to learn to recognize that, wait a minute, I'm experiencing this new thing as some type of a threat. It might be an overt threat, which is, wow, this threatens my value chain, 
Or sometimes in the technological world, what I've seen is that new technology is experienced as a threat to my expertise. This looks different from the way we, we have always done it. And so, you know, I don't really know about that, so I'm going to stay away from it. The answer is to pivot. I don't know about this. Huh. Well, that's interesting. Let me find out about it. What sprang to mind when you were talking about fear is there's an animal model that says, you know, if a rat can actually just smell Feld E1, which is the protein in cat spit that it's aerosolized. Mm -hmm. So it's the rat sensing the presence of the cat. It cowers in the corner. It loses all creativity. It can no longer solve the maze. Exactly. exactly. And so it's sort of a limbic response in people. But I was just thinking about Intel, only the paranoid survive, which is that sort of sense of always sense of fear about something. I don't know what it is, but I have this awareness. And they, you know, they were a memory chip business and they had to pivot into a CPU business. Otherwise we would have already forgotten Intel. We would not be talking today. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> we'd, be on, um, we'd be on somebody else's chips, but it's yeah. just, it's fascinating, isn't it? Cause it's, people just get paralyzed. Do clients, do companies who feel that an executive is in a bind hire you or are you being hired by the executive that finds themselves feeling overwhelmed? Are you going in as a company solution or an individual solution? The majority of my business is as an individual solution. And I will tell you, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say this as a, on a podcast, but I'm going to. That's my favorite way. Remedial coaching is not my favorite thing to do. Well, no, because I was going to—I was going to say because otherwise that curiosity that you've just spoken about, yeah. you'd end up coaching people that weren't curious, who were paralyzed, and then you've got a—then it's a totally different thing, isn't it? Yeah. To modify that question, I have some delightful clients that I've worked with where I've been hired by their company, but there is a keyword question that I always ask clients in private. And it, you know, every conversation I have with a client is confidential. I do not, even if I've been hired by the company, I will not repeat to anybody what a client has said to me. Um, but I always ask this question, what do you want to get out of our time together? What do you want to get out of our time together? And that's very telling because, you know what, if the client is telling me that, you know what, the problem is everyone around me. Like, I don't, you know, these people, like, there's, there's nothing for me to do. Like there's, and I'll, I will literally say, you know what? I don't think this sounds like a match. There might be another coach who would be better for you, very politely. But you know, just say, you know what? I, it sounds like this really might not be a great match. I and you know, coaching is all about your match. I want clients who come to me and say, you know what? There's something going wrong. I can't figure out what it is. And Jerry, I want you to help me figure out what it is. Like that. Then, then we can make beautiful music together. Like that's when it's great. So yeah, I want the client, whether, whether their company's paying for it is not, is fine. I want the client who says to me, yeah, Jerry, you know what? I, I want to go from here to there and I can't quite figure out how to do it. Or this thing is happening that I can't quite figure out how to get, get around. Or, you know, my, my team, I'm having this issue and I can't quite figure out how to get around it. When that happens, that's when it's great because it's all about you know, it's been written about a lot, a growth mindset. And, you know, if, if we can, I, I want to go back to something you mentioned about the limbic system, you know, our response to fear. It is a little bit more nuanced than that 
in humans. And it's actually an, an emotional intelligence skill, which you know I, I talk about because I think it's, it's incredibly important. We have no choice but to experience the emotional impact of what's going around us first. It's literally the way our brains are wired. Our sensory system works by taking in information from our spinal cord into into the limbic system, and, and that's the emotional response. What we have that rats, reptiles, whatever, don't have is a prefrontal cortex. So we have the option to recognize that we feel afraid and then decide what we're going to do about it. Our brains are wired the way they are for a very good reason. Through most of human history, when you heard the rustling in the bush, you did not have time to think about the higher philosophical meaning of that rustling because it's a predator. So it was really important that you have that emotional response first. That doesn't work so well in our society today. So part, part of what I like to work with people on is just like accepting our fears and then thinking about our fears. Okay. I was just, I, as you were talking, I was just thinking about one of the uh, young ladies in our team who had a, a spider in her head. And she'd just been telling me 10 minutes before that she, she knew it was silly, but she has this terrible phobia about spiders. And so one of the others, one of the other ladies was taking the, she said, is it a spider? Is Aha. it a spider? And, and no, no, it's a fly. It's a fly. And she's fine. The moment I said, it's a spider, she just went absolutely <laughs> right. And so when you say we have the choice to, you know, react, there's a bit where you can't help the, you know, like you break out in a sweat or, you know, like you feel your heart racing, but then you have to overcome that initial yeah. response to decide what do you do with it? Right. You have decision-making capability. You know, one of the things I, I think really gets in the way is, you know, we like these metaphors of that fearless leader, right? So I don't think fearlessness exists, at least not in healthy people. I think that fear is really important. It's a way we stay alive. And I think one of the things we need to do is to not pathologize fear. Because when we pathologize fear, you know, when we have leaders who say, I don't want to ever admit that I'm afraid. Well, no, in, in the right circumstance, you as a leader can say to your people, listen, this is a really challenging situation we're in. And you know what? I'm sure a lot of you are afraid and I am too. But here's what I know. I know this team. I know that we're going to figure out the right answer. So what, I, what I'm going to ask each of you to do is to put that fear on one side and now let's think about what we're going to do. Very different thing than trying to pretend that you're not afraid. Yeah, well, because the thing is that actually you think you can pull it off, but you can't. No. Subconsciously, we'll pick up the lack of authenticity. So you'll be standing there saying, I'm not afraid and people will be going, uh, something's off here. Either you're crazy because you should be, or you're not telling me the truth. Yeah. Both of those are really bad things. So I'm not so sure I want to be around you. <laughs> I was slightly afraid before. Now I'm terrified. Yeah. Exactly. You've made it worse. Exactly. Exactly. If people are listening to this thinking, this sounds like a tool, a book I should pick up and read. You know, what are the, who did you write it for? It's people who are disruptive. Obviously, there's some, there's some curiosity because the the people without curiosity they're not listening to this podcast. So that's, <laughs> they're, they're terrified in the corner. You know, Dominic, I started writing this book as a you know a straight on business book, 
um, because that's my my background, you know, engineer, MBA, you know, you know, nearly 30 years in, in corporate leadership roles before launching my business. And it's going to be straight on business book. And I, I spoke to a couple of people in the publishing industry and they said, oh, please, God, Jerry, don't don't give another boring business book. Nobody wants to read it. The world does not need another boring business book. What this book needs to be is more personal. And so the process of writing the book was thinking very deeply about these lessons that I've learned through my career and these lessons that I I now teach my clients and interrogating how I came to believe these lessons. So the book does three things. It, It talks about my journey in overcoming lots and lots of disruption and adversity. And then it talks about the lessons I learned along the way. And then the objective of the book is to make the lessons applicable for the reader, which is really, you know, the work I do. It's about what what are these lessons that we need to learn and then how do we make them applicable? The, the headline I would give you about like what the book covers is so now we've talked about that, you know, adversity, fear, paralysis cycle, that that notion of what you do when you're in the, the place of fear. I call that taking a courageous leap out of the adversity and into the opportunity. The book is really a hands-on guide to what are the practices, everyday practices you can put into your life to enable yourself to take those courageous leaps at times of disruption and fear. And, you know, we've talked about one of the tools, it's about cultivating intellectual capital. And I talk about how to cultivate intellectual capital. I talk about something we have not spoken about today, which is a concept of financial health, Uh which is different from being rich and how cultivating financial health is incredibly important for being able to thrive at times of disruption. It's just really, really important. I absolutely agree. There was a point in my life where I'm working for somebody and I wasn't enjoying it at all. And I just was at a motorway service station and there was this thing called the Little Book of Calm. And it was, you know, I don't know, 50p. And I picked it up and in there, there's one thing and it said, have a fuck them fund. Yes. Be a volunteer. Don't be a wage slave. Have three months salary in the bank. Anybody could spend three months salary to six. Once you don't need a job for six months, then you're a volunteer. Exactly. Totally transformed my mindset in that job. And the moment I got to three months salary in the bank, that was it. And so that financial freedom, absolutely agree. It just, it's just liberating. So one of the other things I talk about in the book, I talk about being able to make courageous leaps and having the financial health is one of the things versus being forced into decisions of desperation. Ah. So one of the ways that people get trapped in this, in this cycle is that you are forced into decisions of desperation. And an easy one to understand is if you don't have financial health, you're going to end up trapped out of necessity in perhaps a miserable job. You maybe find yourself, it, it gets worse than that. Part of the reason that people may make unethical decisions in a job or not speak up in times when they ought to be is because they feel they cannot take the risk of speaking up. Yep. Right? So when you don't have adequate financial health, you may be forced into that bad a decision of desperation, which can have 
terrible consequences and will make whatever that adversity you were facing much worse. Yeah. And you can see that at individual and at corporate level, people making decisions about themselves, but people making the same decisions about companies. And I will say, so this is one of the things I talk about in the book. Again, we've, we've spoken about the, the differences um, in the UK and the US, but you know, a, a, a US specific story that I, that I speak about is on a societal level, we in the US have not done a good job of preparing to people to deal with a disruptive world. So you and I spoke a little bit before about a globalized society. The fact that you and I are able to collaborate so seamlessly today is indication that we now live in a globalized world. Not long ago, we had a sitting US president propose building a wall as an answer to the complexities of a globalized economy that is literally proposing a first century solution to a 21st century problem. That is an example of adversity, fear, paralysis. And unfortunately, in the US, we've had very large portions of the population fall behind and are now subject to the fears that come with not always being economically relevant in a 21st century economy. Yeah. That is an example of, and walling yourself off at that point is not going to solve the problem. That is a societal example of adversity, fear, paralysis. And we can see how that loops around. So one of the things I, you know, I spoke about at the beginning, this concept of a thriving mindset has multiple implications. It, the, the concept applies on the individual level. We could you know, shrink the aperture down to personal lives. We've all known people who were in a bad relationship or may have made a bad financial decision, and we watch them just make one bad decision after another, and they say they're trying to dig themselves out of the hole, but we, we know they're making it worse. So, so that happens. We know it happens. We've spoken about how it happens on a business and a leadership level, right? Now I've spoken about how it can happen on a national societal level. And to, to loop back to like why I wrote this book, who is this book for? All of the above. So the book is, is specifically designed for us to be able to, to, for the reader to be able to look at it and think about what you and I just talked about. Like, oh yeah, I was driving down the road and I was in a terrible job and I, I saw that book and I, and, I, and I was able to relate to it. So it, it shrinks it down to that level but it also gives the tools such that when you're leading a team or leading a company, you can also help to make better decisions yourself and to help your people make better decisions. And I hope that it's a book that when people read it, they will also become more sensitized to societal levels of disruption and paralysis and actually become better citizens because they too can see what's going on on a societal level. Jerry, that's great. That's great. What fantastic purpose for to write a book. Are you going to do an audio version? I will at some point do an audio version. It has not happened yet. I will do an audio version because I actually tend to consume audiobooks myself. I, I can listen to them at like 2 or 2.5x for, for crazy reasons that you and I will talk can talk about at another time. Um, so I feel a little bad for not having done an audio version. However, today, 
there is a soft cover version and there is an ebook version. You can even download the first chapter of the ebook version by going to my website, jerryvalentine.com. And the book is available on Amazon or wherever else you, you like to buy your books. Fab. Jerry, what is it that you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? So, you know, I love that question, Dominic. You've asked actually lots of questions I love. I think about that question as something that I would tell my much younger self. Um, I'm 59 years old. You know, I think back to what I would have told my my 25-year-old self who was like just starting out in the corporate world and, you know, really struggling with a lot of things, um, you know, trying to climb a, a very big mountain and, you know, as a very stressed out young man. I would have said to fully accept and value yourself just as you are. I, I actually think that that notion, there's a chapter in the book about the journey to self-acceptance. That notion, And I meet incredibly successful people who on some level have not fully accepted themselves, have something about themselves that they have not fully accepted. But I think that when we learn to fully accept and value ourselves, that's when we can really live into our talents. And that's when we can really bring our best selves to the world, whether it's, you know, in our personal lives or, you know, what, what, what I like to talk to my clients about is leading as your best self. Well, you can only lead as your best self when you have made that journey to self-acceptance. So I, the thing I would say is, Learn to fully accept and value yourself. Very good. What other books should people pick up? You know, we're getting into, certainly in the UK, not so much the US. The US isn't uh, big on long vacations, but in Europe, we're into sort of verging on children breaking up from school and summer vacation and maybe some uh, poolside reading. Yeah. Other than the thriving mindset, what, what do you recommend? Like maybe books that, have had an influence on you or even something you just you're reading at the moment? Well, I'm I'm going to tell you about a book that I just finished, just put down. Um it's a book entitled Cast: The Origin of Our Discontents. It's a book by a woman named Isabel Wilkerson. She's a New York Times columnist and she she actually won a Pulitzer Prize. And the in the book Cast, Isabella is, is an African-American woman. She deconstructs the concept of race and actually pivots in, she may have only say race two or three times in the book, and quickly pivots to the concept of caste. That allows her to zoom out and take a global perspective on the notion of caste and the socioeconomic implications of caste. And then she zooms back in to the U.S. I will admit it's a U.S.-centric book, but I think it, it applies to everyone globally. And she analyzes how the U.S. is actually and has always been an extremely caste-based country, though we have this, this mythology about being the country where you know anyone can make it and you know freedom and liberty for all. That has, in point of fact, never been true. And the the tension between the truth and the reality is actually the reason that we cannot have the conversations we need to have today about a broad variety of things everything from economic inequality to climate change is rooted in her argument to this 
initial original sin of caste, how that has created divisions in our society, and now is preventing all of us from making the progress that we need to make. It's a fascinating book and lots of history that everybody should know and very few people know. I think that notion of caste is really interesting because it, it then allows you to look that, you know, they, I, immediately I thought that would change the narrative in the UK, you know, like, you know, instead, you know, the racism in the US and racism in the UK are very different. And then you look at somewhere like India, you know, and it's at a religious level or maybe it's at a caste level. It's at a caste level. Yeah. Even in, even in the UK, if you think about the, you know, Scotland, England, Right. I mean, they, you can take a cast, take a cast exactly. lens for that, exactly. which otherwise there's no vocabulary for. That's, that's fascinating. It's a brilliant work. Again, it's US centric, but I think she, but what she does is she then zooms out. She travels to India and she, she works with some Indian scholars in developing her ideas. Some Indian scholars who were born into low castes which is, you know, allows some fascinating concepts to emerge. And then she looks at how that, like, once you get into those rigid caste systems, and then in the U.S., what we've done is we've aligned caste with political party. And then, and then of course, we have a polarization of concepts. And then that rigidly enforced and actually violently enforced caste system in the U.S. for, for much of our history and to a certain extent to this day um, is what in many ways, prevents us from making the progress that we need to make and is now threatening our entire country. Just from what I know about India, that whole, you know, social mobility between castes, and I'm looking forward to going and getting a copy of that. What what else What else should squeeze another one from you if you've got one? What other books? Sure. So the, another one that I have, so I tend to be a little bit of a geek. <laughs> Just warn you that before I tell this book. It's called Arguing with Zombies. It's by Paul Kirkman, who actually is, frankly, another New York Times columnist. He's a, an award-winning economist. And Arguing with Zombies is Kirkman's um, economic analysis of societal and social issues. And it is fascinating to, and, you know, he says, you know what, I, yes, I do have personal beliefs politically, but I'm not going to talk about that now. I'm going to talk about the economics. And I, I will confess, there were a couple of chapters that made me think, oh my God, I should have paid a little bit more attention to Econ 101. I can't remember this concept. <laughs> but, but for the most part, th that's in the minority. There's only a couple of times. Most of it is very, very, very accessible. And it's, it's, it's very interesting to take you know, an economic, you know, to, to, a, to a certain, it's, it's not a physical science, but to a certain extent, a scientific technical lens on societal challenges. So Arguing with Zombies by Paul Kergman, another great book to pick up. You got, you got another one? So the, well, one that I'm working on right now is an autobiography of Eleanor Roosevelt, um, which by, it's Eleanor Roosevelt's autobiography. It's fascinating. It's just a really, really, really great read. A another one I would recommend is Sapiens, A Brief History of, hum of Humankind. Fab. Jerry? absolutely lovely to have you on and chat to you today thank you for being a guest it has been a delight thank you so much for having me dominic i really appreciate this
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week. Hello, this is Dominic Monkhouse from Monkhouse & Company interrupting my own conversation with this week's guest on The Melting Pot. I do The Melting Pot because I want to put tools in the hands of CEOs, managing directors and business leaders, tools that will help them change their business and get the outcomes that they're struggling with. And there's one other thing that we do as well that helps with that, and we run workshops at the management lab at the farm in Wiltshire. And the next one is the afternoon of the 6th of July. So come along and we'll walk you through some practical tools. You can see for yourself how these tools could help you deal with the challenges of growth in your business. Look forward to seeing you then. Now back to the conversation.